0: This is Bob Wintermute, your host at the New Books and Military History channel of the New Books Network. We turn again to nuclear strategy during the Cold War for this episode of New Books and Military History. Many place the beginnings of the American space program at 7.28 p.m. October 4th, 1957. That is the moment when the Soviet Union launched the first satellite, Sputnik 1, into orbit. According to most histories of the space race this event prompted the United States to launch its own crash program to put first a satellite and then later human beings into space. Now, all of this, of course, was driven not so much by the desire to tame this final frontier as it was by fear of such missiles being used as delivery systems for nuclear warheads. Our guest, Nicholas Michael Sambaluk argues that the Eisenhower administration actually oversaw another technological path to weaponize space, beginning in 1954. In his book, The Other Space Race, Eisenhower and the Quest for Aerospace Security, Sam Bullock describes the checkered history of the dynamic, soarer space glider bomber, or dinosaur, a heat-resistant, single-seat space shuttle that was intended to guarantee American aerospace superiority. While the Dinosaur program was ultimately canceled, its legacy lived on in the form of the SR-71 Blackbird reconnaissance aircraft and the space shuttle. Nick Zambaluk is an associate professor of strategy at the Air University at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama.
1: Nick, welcome to New
0: Books of Military History.
1: Thanks for having me, Bob. It's great to be here.
0: Well, first of all, I need to give the short disclosure. Um, the views expressed in this interview in no way reflect upon current official policy of the Defense Department, the United States Air Force, or the Air University. The opinions shared with us are entirely those of Nick Sambuluk. Does that sound about right? Perfect. Okay, well, Nick, this is a, again a very interesting topic. It's very little known topic. Um, how did you come to it? I mean, what, what made you pursue a project that connected both the space program and American strategic nuclear policy?
1: Well, uh, growing up, uh, I was uh, as a kid, I was always absolutely fascinated with history and uh, uh, particularly military history. But history in, in, in general is pretty interesting uh, to me. Uh, uh, as, a, as a lifelong uh, passion. And anytime that you could stick something that flies into that history, that was uh, definitely a plus. So uh, sort of speeding ahead, uh, the uh, impetus for digging deeper into uh, in, into the, the dinosaur program and finding it in the, uh, a, as a topic for more exploration dates to when I was at uh, University of Kansas. I was uh, uh, studying under the late uh, uh, Roger Spiller, and in the course of doing a research paper uh, dealing with the with the Kennedy era, I noticed the um, the dinosaur program, and uh, it seemed like every time it was mentioned, it was it would be mentioned in, just in passing as this thing was you know unfocused, it was a waste of money, good riddance to it, nothing to see here, folks. And I thought, well, that's interesting that it's it's almost verbatim the same. Account of like, well, there's no no story here, and I thought well, it's kind of odd. The cancellation is the only, the only piece of information you ever really hear about it. So I dug a little bit more deeply and found that uh, there's there's a paper trail and there's a lot more history. And uh, uh, in in fact, there's uh, about six years of of program development with a with a back history before that that is fascinating in its own right. But also, I think uh, t- has has something to tell us about uh, the development of uh, space security policy, and I was I was pretty well hooked, and I knew this was this was what I wanted to dig more deeply into.
0: Well, before we start talking about the origins of Eisenhower's views on space. Uh, maybe we should define exactly what the dinosaur was in a few brief words. You know, we'll come back to it in greater detail shortly. But you know, let's cue our listeners in at exactly what this exotic sounding platform was.
1: Sure. So the um, the dynamic soar concept um, was to have a, a single seat piloted craft that would be uh, launched into space. Uh, atop a, a booster rocket. Similar in general shape to, to a shuttle, but but sitting atop a rocket rather than sort of attached side by side. It would be uh, composed of extremely heat resistant materials uh across the entire surface of the of the vehicle. And it's it would be launched or boosted into into uh, into space and attain orbit thanks to its its booster rocket. Once in space, it would be able to maneuver due to its its pilot's uh, actions. It'd be able to conduct relevant missions. And the Air Force envisioned reconnaissance in terms of looking at potential Soviet targets, bombing in terms of dropping warheads from space. And of course, that's a much more complex concept than than just dropping something just because because of, sort of orbital mechanics. But uh, uh, looking at targets bombarding them and then observing the effects and deciding providing information so that decision makers can decide does something need to be hit again does something else need to be hit instead the uh, the Air Force saw it as a as a bombardment and reconnaissance warfighting vehicle and then it would after its mission had been completed it would re-enter the atmosphere uh, using its, its heat resistant surface to avoid you know burning up on re-entry okay. and because it's maneuverable, it would be able to steer more or less toward a, uh, a predetermined landing landing site, which would be an, uh, an Air Force base. And this was one of the big selling points for the Air Force's uh, perspective. The, the kinds of uh, space capsules that we see being used by NASA, for example, in the 1960s, these would be boosted atop a, a booster rocket into space also, but their reentry uh, as as con- conical vehicles would be sort of fall through the atmosphere and try to land in a general patch of ocean and they'd be uh, rescued by a, uh, uh, a naval contingent that would be re- ready and poised in the general region and would search an area of you know, hundreds of square miles to make sure that, that they'd find the capsule and the people in it. The dinosaur was meant to land on an airbase so that the pilot could in essence, step out of his craft and step onto tarmac and not need to be, uh, in effect, rescued after every mission, but could land at a specific place. Well,
0: in a big way, I think, the story of Dinosaur and after 1957, the competing space program really speaks directly towards what's a historic American fascination with flight. How much of, of the program is related to this as compared to the more mundane competition for funding and influence within the American military establishment after the Second World War?
1: That's a great question, Bob. I'd say that uh, the, the Air Force made a very strong and uh, fairly successful um, cultural sales pitch uh, for several for several decades, leading up to and then following its uh, its service independence, um, the Air Force did a really uh, concerted job and concerted effort to to uh, help the the American public see the excitement of flight and interpret it as um, kind of an, an ingrained manifestation of Americanness. And uh, in, in in a sense, we see this uh, in Air Force cooperation with with Hollywood to uh, uh, produce some of the some of the big um, air power movies of the 1950s, like you know, uh, and and into the early 1960s, um, like Strategic Air Command, uh, as uh, as as one example. Mm-hmm. And the Air Force was very interested in making sure that the public interpreted. Um, a certain a certain mystique and glamour with aviation and with air power, and uh, that that was an important uh, part of the Air Force's message that it that it embodied this um, powerful mystique that was also capable of defending the nation and um, capturing capturing imagination is a is a pretty vital uh, component of being able to subsequently make make the pitch for. Uh, A bold, a bold new program that certainly is going to be breaking a lot of uh, technological ground and scientific ground, but also is going to be uh, is going to cost, cost some cash, um, which which the program did because it was it was breaking, uh, breaking a number of uh, sort of records. And it was pushing the envelope in ways that um, hadn't didn't didn't have that much precedent yet.
0: Well, we're told, I know, that, that President Dwight Eisenhower had little interest in space development. You know, I can I think to um, Roger Launius, for example, in, in his book, Space Flight and the Myth of Presidential Leadership. Yeah, you know, he notes that Eisenhower felt that the entire space program was this money pit. You know, the nation can't afford it. Uh, why pursue it? But that's not entirely true. I mean, we look at open skies, we look at his support for the International Geophysical Year Initiative of 1957. What was Eisenhower's
1: views on space? Yeah, I think Eisenhower saw. Uh, it's important for us to think of Eisenhower as a very capable um, strategic thinker. He was more. He was more capable, I think, as a strategist than he often let on, uh, which which has some implications for his for his uh, political career and his political fortunes. Um, once once something sort of brought the, the space topic. Uh, to do greater public prominence. But I think it's, it's fair to say that uh, Eisenhower, as a, as a strategic thinker, um, understood that national uh, security and success using resources in a in a deliberate and uh, constructive fashion. And uh, one of the things that he thought would be important for this would be to um, direct efforts towards toward some sort of actual constructive goal. And so uh, what he did do in space... Was uh, try to pursue, uh, and as, as you allude, uh, policies will be um, conducive to, to national security and as uh, efficient in terms of carry, uh resources as possible. Open skies was a, a concept to uh, allow um, diplomatic recognition and and, uh, and respect for uh, U.S. and Soviet uh, reconnaissance efforts into each other's countries as a means of um, understanding each other's uh, strategic uh, positions, and also of reducing tensions, which would uh, not only uh, cut the, the the need and potentially the call for lots and lots of new defense spending, but also uh, very importantly, reduce the, the risk of uh, World War III being launched because of um, fear caused by a lack of information. Um, when Open Skies was um, sort of diplomatically shot down uh, after he proposed it in in uh, 1955, he, he didn't he didn't stop um, uh, approving the covert reconnaissance flights over the Soviet. Union. Those had been going on for almost, for already a year, and he he continued with those. But he knew that they were um, that there was a finite lifespan to those reconnaissance efforts, and when he couldn't get diplomatic uh, appro- uh, respect. Lent to uh, the flights of the, of the U-2 uh, reconnaissance aircraft, it was uh, all the more imperative to press forward with his uh, space policy priority, which was to ensure a kind of a space counterpart uh, to uh, to the uh, open skies concept. And this is what was called uh, space for peace. The notion being that uh, U.S. satellites, if respected in orbit, as not a threat to other countries, could then proceed to collect reconnaissance information on the Soviet Union, understand the Soviet uh, strategic posture, and reduce uh, pressures for military buildups and also reduce um, the possibility of misunderstandings that might lead to uh, calls for um, some sort of preventive uh, strike. So his, his, his priority was to tamp down the, the Cold War tensions to promote uh, projects that would uh, nest into that policy. And so we, th- we see things like the um, International Geophysical Year uh, scientific project, which had um, spanned from 1957 into, to 1958, the idea that there would be um, efforts by uh, different, different countries to um, launch a scientific satellite. Uh, Eisenhower was very interested in making sure that the U.S. satellite effort would demonstrate the peaceful nature, that is to say the the non-weaponized nature, of uh, U.S. space efforts. He also um, was very conscious to separate that from um, military uh, uh, control uh, so that the public would, he hoped, uh, understand uh, this, this project Vanguard as a completely civilian, peaceful effort to set the precedent for uh, Space for Peace, which would then support the subsequent launching of uh, reconnaissance satellites, which have no weapons and provide, um, provide reconnaissance data for the purpose of um, drawing down Cold War tension.
0: Well, there, you know, there's also the influence, I think, of, of the German scientists who had originally worked on Hitler's rocket program. You know, we, we know about Werner von Braun, of course, but there are others more directly connected to what would become Dinosaur. Who were these men and how much of a, of a role did they play in shaping the Eisenhower administration's pursuit of aerospace primacy?
1: That's a that's a really great point because you're right. Uh, von von Braun is uh, iconic, but uh, was by no means the only the only uh, uh, German person per, uh, picked up um, Operation Paperclip, the the collecting of of these uh, Nazi scientists at the end of World War II, was a much more um, comprehensive uh, endeavor than, uh, than than simply von Braun, as, as you as you point out uh, regarding the um the dynamic soar project i think it's fair to say the the most important name amongst these german folks is uh, uh dornberger dorn uh walter dornberger was a uh, uh high ranking uh official in in uh, the nazi regimes um sort of science and technology efforts he was uh, von braun's uh, uh boss and he was he was picked up by the uh, by the americans at the end of World War II, and by the early 1950s, by 1952, he was um, already describing some of the late World War II um, ambitions to uh, officials at Bell Aircraft. And amongst these was uh, this um, extension of uh, a scientific theory advanced by uh, a couple of Germans in the 1930s uh, named Sanger and Brent. And uh, what what, uh, what's, what Sanger and Brent had kind of hypothesized was some sort of glider launched on a, uh, a ramp, a little bit like the V-1. If Folks have, have seen uh, footage of a V ones being launched against Britain during World War II. This would be kind of launched along a very, very long version of that kind of ramp. It would be a... Um, very aerodynamic, uh, twin tail um, vehicle that would be sped up by rocket motor, uh, pushed along the ramp, launched up into into the sky, and would reach the uh, reach the atmosphere. And the concept, uh, and this is in the from the mid 1930s into the uh, through through World War II, the concept was that well maybe you could have something that would reach the atmosphere and then be able to use the atmosphere. Almost like the, the the top of a pond, when you can, if you throw a rock right, you can skip a stone on a pond because it's bouncing off of the surface, and I essentially, I guess, uses surface tension to skip rather than just fall into the pond. Uh, the notion was that this vehicle might be able to skip along the top of the of the of the atmosphere, and uh, vastly extend the range of uh, of itself relative to conventional contemporary aircraft. Um, With World War II, this went from being a uh, kind of a a wild hair concept of, I wonder if it would be possible to do this, into, well, how do we weaponize it? And um, in order to promote the idea in in a wartime context, uh, it was theorized, well, maybe you could have a a bomb load of 1,000 pounds, a couple thousand pounds of bombs that you could uh, deliver from Germany to a, a target across the Atlantic Ocean, say, drop a couple thousand pounds of bombs on New York. Um, the the idea was a very interesting one, but uh, faced some immense technological hurdles. As Bell Aircraft quickly recognized when when Dornberger sort of brushed off this this uh, notion and and started uh, uh, advertising it to them, the Bell Aircraft folks uh, recognized that. The the heat involved in skipping off the atmosphere to extend range uh, was enormous, and would be way beyond the capabilities of uh, early nineteen fifties technology. And so, rather than uh, trying to extend range by skipping like a stone, it would probably be better if you if it were somehow possible to launch. With even more power, even more thrust, get the thing into being an orbital craft, and sustain enough heat-resistant capabilities that it could return through the atmosphere, but do it, one, but return once rather than skipping like a stone and um, coming into contact with reentry-type heats over and over and over again on the same uh, on, on a single mission. And Bell Aircraft uh, uh, kind of picked up this idea and ran with it for a couple of years uh, from 1952 into 1954 before the Air Force decided the, that this was something that uh, merited some uh, some Air Force attention, some Air Force resources. For the first two years, Bell Aircraft had uh, been putting small-scale attention into this and, and research uh, uh, effort into this by itself on the hope that it might down the road, be able to um, convince the Air Force that this was worth Air Force, you know, public money.
0: Well, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's all. I mean, to be honest, it's it's borderline science fiction for the 1950s, certainly. And I, I could I could see the need then for the Air Force's pursuit of you know this strenuous public relations campaign to convince Congress and, and the American public that it was viable and essential. Um, you already mentioned that, that public relations campaign to some extent, but I mean, it was, it was multifaceted. I mean, it didn't just incorporate the Hollywood and the science fiction pulp community. I mean, it was, it was a major feature of popular science and technology uh, magazines as well.
1: Uh, Yes, indeed. That's, that's very true. Um. There are uh, the historical record does show uh, some some attention drawn in things like letters to the editor from engineering students uh, who are who are tracking this kind of project. Certainly, the the uh, uh, professional journals in the aviation sector uh, include both um, advertisements and stories that relate to uh, to the dinosaur. In terms of of uh, advertisements, I think it's pretty interesting because. Um, frequently you'll see companies like Garrett which uh, was a was a subcontractor for the for the dynamic soar uh, program or Boeing which was the 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 main the the contractor for the for the vehicle itself or Martin as the as the contractor for the booster rocket they would advertise their own company um, by highlighting what the dinosaur would accomplish when it was a built uh, a built system but they were they were running advertisements in you know, 59, 60, 61. And this is a craft that was canceled at the end of 1963 without, without to actually flying. But the, the expectation that this would be a project that would, um, become a, a significant part of the air force's force structure down the road was enough that, um, companies th- thought this, this is something they can, they can hang their hat on. And, um, Contextualize into their into their corporate um, sort of persona to the public, um, both in terms of selling the, their their companies' um, technological capabilities, what they could what they could sell to uh, other other consumers um, in terms of aircraft parts and technologies, but uh, also occasionally you'll see um, the the dinosaur program highlighted, uh, when these companies are trying to recruit, um, candidates as, as engineer, um, new engineering employees. Um, so certainly that, that speaks to an, a public awareness. These companies would not have spent, uh, on advertising to promote and highlight their image as a, um, cutting edge corporation and proving it with images of the dinosaur, unless, unless the public is aware of this project. And indeed, um, shifting over from the sort of the advertising side of the of the picture to the, to the new side of the picture, um, a lot of a lot of attention does go into space vehicles generally, but the the dinosaur uh, in particular does get some significant attention in the trade journals, the aviation trade journals, uh, throughout the time that it's a uh, uh, an ongoing project throughout this this window from 1957 to to 63. That is a named. Uh, research project, but uh, it it also is repeatedly mentioned in um, in some of the, the mainstream um, press as well. Uh, it can be it can be repeatedly found in stories that, uh, for example, in the in the, the Washington Post, the New York Times. Um, this was the the opportunity to come upon news about the dinosaur was not limited purely to um, the aviation sector. Although it was certainly something that is a recurring um, topic amongst aviation trade journals so there was there was opportunity for the public to uh, understand pretty well what this project was it was not a, it was not a classified project it was publicly available information that that there was a dynamic soar um, vehicle being pursued by the air force and um, in in a broad sense its mission Its mission set was also something that the public was um, aware of and had had access to, that this was going to be meant to fly in space as a Air Force system advancing the, the American deterrent. And that meant nuclear weapons in space. That was what the Air Force was pushing for. And that was something that the public had ready access to, to understanding.
0: Yeah, you know, it's such a public program. I have to wonder what the Soviet Union made of it. Do you have any evidence
1: or is there any indication how how the other side viewed dinosaur? That's a really good question. Um as a as a non-Russian speaker, I'm I'm kind of on the back foot in, in that regard. circumstantially, uh, um, the the Soviets were were continually working on various um, projects for defense, but also for um national national prestige on the international stage. Um in uh, in terms of space research and space accomplishments broadly, um, one of the things the, that the Soviet scientists um, noted after the Cold War in, in some of their memoirs was the predilection of Soviet policymakers to want to, to juice up the Soviet uh, um, profile globally through another cool space. Um, in essence, this is what this Spot One uh stemmed from was it an, an, an interest by Soviet uh, policymakers to uh, do something spectacular that we noticed in the world stage. And when that attention sort of died down and policymakers said, oh, we need to take the world with Soviet expertise and technology development, the technicians were told, it oh, do, do another amazing thing. This led to, uh, in some sense, a pattern of Soviet technologists continually being pressed to um, face these recurring hurdles of a one-off spectacular and in in a sense that that diverted attention away from um more sustainable uh o- over long haul, demonstrable accomplishments, continue instead to continue making um you know a an either be landed on the moon's flag, or something that landed on Venus and brought and, and and broadcast some very briefly, or these these various feats uh to to some extent were sort of productive in terms of a Soviet parallel to uh, to the dinosaur we do see toward the end of the 1960s um, the um, research into whether a, a the, the entry phase of the dinosaur could be duplicated this is uh, the, uh, the uh, mig 150 it's uh, kind of a shaped a little bit like a metallic version of a of a, a Dutch wood shoe with wings almost and uh, they did test that in the late 1960s to see if they could manage um, Re-entry from uh, extreme altitudes with unconventional shaped vehicles. That's about as close as they came to, uh, apparently, to a true counterpart of the uh, of the dinosaur itself. They they were certainly interested and engaged with a lot of projects. Um, space-based reconnaissance was something that the Soviets not only um, but also uh, actively um, conducted. The Almaz program uh, was was nested into. The rest of their space program and some of their um, some of their space missions in the 1970s that were framed for the international community as being part of their like their regular Soyuz capsules and such were in fact um, apparently uh, reconnaissance missions uh, with cosmonauts conducting reconnaissance um, uh, pointed at the United States. So they they were certainly active. Um, that activity didn't necessarily. Uh, extend to a direct parallel to the Dynamic Sora project, but uh, but they were doing things in space that correlated with part of the mission set that the Americans had, uh, the American Air Force had envisioned the dinosaur achieving.
0: Well, you know, turning back to the United States, you know, I'm curious too as to, you know, what the more traditional bomber generals. I mean, of course, there's it's Air Force General and Chief of Staff Curtis LeMay as, as the the epitome of this, you know, what do these guys think of the whole project? I mean, on one level, it almost seems like it's too pie in the sky for men who came of age in their careers, flying, you know, traditional bombers over Germany and Japan. Was there a breakdown of factions within the air force of people for and against Dinosaur? That's a,
1: that's a great question because, um, it, it gets to the core of something that had been uh, an ongoing sort of dilemma for top Air Force um, figures, um, even even before the space race. There's, um, there's a, a kind of a, a pull because dollars can only be spent once, and there is the, in the midst of the Cold War, there's certainly the need to have a standing competent force that is able to um, embody deterrence without, I mean, without which, um, the concern was the Soviets might feel, um, empowered and enabled to launch some sort of aggression that might spiral into war. Um, so th- there certainly was the need to always maintain a credible deterrent force. And that, it's going to take a lot of resources at the same time. Um, there was an understanding, um, amongst strategists that, uh, that there's a lot of people in the Soviet Union and that the Soviets can and historically did push uh, numbers, mass, at an enemy. Um, Stalin's quotation that uh, um, believed believe be something he did uh, perhaps actually say, that uh, uh, quantity has a quality all of its own, was something that uh, could be could be seen in, the, in World War II and was certainly something that strategists had to be aware of. The Soviets could throw people and stuff at problems in vast quantities um, with little compunction. And uh, for an adversary of the Soviet Union, it would be necessary because we couldn't really match in a democracy, match the numbers that they were willing to deploy or the casualties that their you know, leaders would be willing to sustain. We'd have to counter that somehow with some sort of some sort of offset. And the uh, approach that was continually used was technological superiority. And the upshot of that is that now not only does the United States find itself needing to always have a credible deterrent force, but it's going to always need that force to have a technological edge, a technological lead over the Soviet Union, um, which means or implicitly is going to mean an ongoing requirement for scientific and technological, uh, research and development, which is expensive too. Um, LeMay as a, uh, uh in, in his career as a senior airman, as a person who's in charge of strategic air command, and then, uh, subsequently becomes a vice chief of staff and then chief of staff, uh, tended to really, really value, um, the deterrent force in being. Um, and for this was this was I think uh, a very beneficial thing for for the Strategic Air Command when he was its commander, was he his emphasis and attention on the deterrent force that is competent and ready today. Uh, he the, the Strategic Air Command as he found it when he when he became commander was in many ways a an underfunded and somewhat dilapidated force in the late nineteen forties, and he transformed that. By the time he was uh, he was promoted from Strategic Air Command uh, head to being uh, Vice Chief of Staff, he transformed the, uh, the, the, the SAC into being a far more um, impressive deterrent force. Um, when he became Vice Chief and then Chief of Staff, um, we see we see his his attentions and his and his rhetoric. <sighs> Supporting both the standing force, but then also awareness that there will need to be more more development into future programs, into things that will or um, were assumed to um, succeed the B fifty two, the B fifty two, the you know Stratofortress bomber was not intended to be um, the big U S bomb delivery platform for decades and decades. It was certainly. During the Cold War, never expected that it was still in the U.S. inventory by the the twenty teens. Uh, rather, the assumption was that as um, as technology unfolded and improved, uh, aircraft would continue to get higher, higher flying, farther flying, faster flying. And air defenses would also pr- progress apace, and um, the bomber of today would become obsolete before too long, and need to be uh, supplanted by the bomber of tomorrow, and then the bomber of the next day after that, uh, succeeding. And that's why we see uh, attention to the uh, B-70 Valkyrie research program uh, in the in the 1960s. That was intended to be the successor to the B-52. Um, the dinosaur was seen as something that would be able to succeed the b70 and, uh, and of course it didn't it didn't turn out to work out but um, LeMay was aware that there would need to be successive improving technologies this this idea of a, of a technological spiral that is constantly improving having to constantly improve in order to keep ahead of mm-hmm. the Soviets and ultimately reaching higher and higher altitudes until it meant uh Aerospace combat in in wartime, that was something that that LeMay was on board with. He was – one of the reasons that the dinosaur program uh, appealed to him to a degree was that as a pilot craft, it offered uh, versatility that a lot of senior airmen did not really think was possible in um, nuclear-armed ballistic missiles. There was a lot of concern in the as as missile development progressed, that although these are very impressive things, they can be launched and you know half an hour later they'll be landing in Soviet uh, targets and blowing up with you know megaton warheads. All that might be very impressive. There were there were certainly limitations. There were technological limitations in terms of um, rocket to, uh, rockets perhaps not flying the way you want them to or malfunctioning in some way. There was also uh, the question of precision, uh, because once a, uh, once one of these missiles is fired off, you don't really know that it's hitting its target. And senior airmen were very concerned that um, if the Air Force were directed to rely principally on nuclear-armed ballistic missiles for its deterrent, um, deterrent force, that there would need to be some kind of reconnaissance technology ...matched up with that bombardment uh, effort, that there need to be something that could fly over Soviet territory during World War III to at least see, did these uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, did these ICBMs reach their targets and destroy their targets, or do they need to be hit again? And the dinosaur was, was seen favorably by figures, including, including LeMay, um, as something that could accomplish that, as something that could lend um, some versatility and some flexibility... Um, to missile force that it would not otherwise had, in terms of knowing the targets have been um struck and struck effectively, but then also perhaps being able to conduct bombardment in its own right, and so Lemay was um, somewhat favorably disposed to the dynamic soarer,
0: oh okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, of course, Sputnik changes all this. I mean, it, it raises the American public's anxiety over, over its possible vulnerability to a Soviet attack. Uh, and there's other factors as well. How did Eisenhower manage the crisis that came up with Sputnik? And, and conversely, did the Air Force establishment see this as an opportunity to, to press harder for Dinosaur?
1: That's a great question. Uh, I think it's one of the one of the really interesting and uh, until until now sort of obscure uh, dynamics in uh, the development of, of space technologies and of, and of security policymaking in the 1950s is what effect Sputnik had. It's fair to say that um, by 19 by 1954 and 1955, the the Eisenhower administration and the Air Force have each got. An idea of what they want to accomplish with space, and uh, for Eisenhower, it is as we kind of described uh, uh, a little bit earlier. It is the idea that space can provide a realm in which reconnaissance, policy level reconnaissance, can be conducted to reduce Cold War tensions and, and cut away some of the possibility of, of war erupting. And so, for that uh, for that objective. It's going to be important to have reconnaissance technologies like what will become uh, the, the secret, then secret, uh, Corona reconnaissance satellite come online. That is a coherent space policy conception in its own right. The Air Force, <clears throat> at the same time, decided that uh, te- uh, technology broadly, especially aviation technology, was always... Um, advancing by leaps and bounds uh, because we're talking about a a time in which uh, the aircraft was only uh, 50 years old as a technology and folks had gotten from the Wright Brothers to Mach 2 flight in 50 years and so the expectation within, within the Air Force amongst these airmen was that technological capacities of aviation would continue to grow in terms of speed and range and altitude and that it was only a matter of time Pardon. It's only a matter of time until um, this these aviation capabilities ex- naturally extended into space, beyond beyond the, the atmosphere into the extra atmosphere environments. Another trend that the Air Force had noticed was that um, efforts to artificially contain wars um, have had a, a spotty record. And that probably, if there's a possibility of flying in some realm, it's only a matter of time before there'll be combat in that realm. That was a, um, a tenet of Air Force thought in the 1950s. From that, it uh, proceeded naturally that sooner or later, uh, the entire uh, envelope the airspace realm would be a, um, a domain of conflict. That was something that that Airmen believed in the 1950s. And that, too, um, those feelings within the Air Force, within themselves, is a coherent vision of what space might mean uh, for for security. The problem in the mid-1950s is that the Eisenhower conception within the administration and the Air Force conception within that service, although they were respectively each... Um, a coherent vision of what space exploration might mean for security did not nest with each other effectively. There was not agreement between Eisenhower and the Air Force. And in the 1950s, um, although these two paths are in essence on a collision course, space itself is such a uh, small-scale backburner topic that... This collision course is not obvious, and the, and it's not of imminent um, policy implication in 1954 or 1955. Somebody who's really watching these can see okay, the, these these policies are are pointed in different uh, in, in a in a lighting, uh, kind of manner, but there's nothing that's going to bring this to the to the front burner um, and create a crisis until Sputnik. What Sputnik one did in October f- 1957 was uh, thrust the space issue into the public uh, stage, under the public uh, vision in a way that it had not been before. It had been kind of a Buck Rogers sci-fi topic. And so the transformation of Sputnik, uh, through, through Sputnik, of space into being a, uh, a page one kind of issue um, suddenly brought into relief um, the apparent need for okay. security policy in space and this, was, this made Eisenhower very politically vulnerable because Eisenhower's policy approach um, as president had been what was uh, known um, from uh, Fred Einstein's work in the early 1980s as the hidden hand presidency. Eisenhower was not a hands-off president, but he was very meticulously careful to not show himself as being um in every decision, on every step. And I think it's fair to say that Part of why Eisenhower um, preferred a hidden-hand approach to, to policymaking it involves his um, half-century career in the in the uh, United States Army and his awareness that he was a little uncomfortable with the idea of general presence, uh, of general presence. and his being one kind of kind of didn't entirely sit right with him. And in order to sort of prevent some sort of um, – I guess – negative present. He wanted to um, establish a persona as a policymaker that was competent and able, but also affable and avuncular and not seeming super hands-on, even though he was engaged in policymaking, not making that um, a prominent um, f- factor in, in public attention. That worked fine as long as there wasn't a major uh, security crisis. As long and throughout his first term as president, by and large, there was no major existential security crisis facing the facing the country. He managed to wind up the Korean War by the summer of 1953. Um, there wasn't another outbreak of war uh, for the rest of his presidency. There were flash flashpoints. There were flare-ups like. Kimwe and Matsu. There's the things with with China that happened a couple of times. There's uh, deployments to um, the Eastern Mediterranean. But um, Eisenhower was very pleased and and proud to have averted um, another eruption of of conflict under his tenure and wanted to maintain a situation where um, the U.S. was able to, through deterrence, wage Cold War effectively not engage in a hot war, not uh, encounter major security crises, and allow the public to feel, you know, we like Ike and we can trust him, and things are calm, and I can I can focus on my on my own life, and sort of the iconic um, visions that we got now of of how pleasant and fun and and carefree the 1950s were is something that was possible because Eisenhower. Possible in part because Eisenhower consciously tried to avoid um, a sense of crisis in his in his in the part of the Cold War that was under his tenure. That worked fine until a, a an apparent security crisis emerged. What Sputnik 1 did was present a scientific accomplishment or technological accomplishment from the Soviet Union in a way that, uh surprised some in the west and catalyzed concern that started eroding that confidence in Eisenhower and put him on the back foot because now now that there is a apparent but really not not factual security crisis Eisenhower's uh avuncular attitude his hidden hand approach to the presidency at a stroke looks out of touch naive uninformed and at that point, he's struggling for the remainder of his presidency to sort of contain these forces that have been building up. And I think we can broadly say that um, every every policymaker is going to come to come to power with a philosophy and an approach to leadership that has got its its advantages and its disadvantages. And over time, some of those advantages are going to start to show cracks because, um, as a leader, you know, leads. People will get a chance to observe what's being done and figure out ways to um, respond, react, maneuver around that. And uh, by by the end of the 1950s and into the 1960 presidential campaign, uh, Eisenhower's um, political adversaries domestically were latching onto um, a, a useful tool. The what policy critics had existed before uh, before Sputnik. Uh, had generally um, been in two separate and um, distinguishable camps. There had been a few people who were upset with Eisenhower's defense policy because they thought he wasn't spending enough on the non-nuclear things, that his, that his emphasis on massive retaliation was starving the army, that it was meaning that there wasn't enough capabilities for conventional warfare if the Soviets did something less than World War III-provoking. The other uh, sort of strand of criticism to Eisenhower policy before Sputnik was also sort of small, and it was that he was not spending enough on nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons delivery capabilities. The notion of a bomber gap in the mid-1950s, the notion of a missile gap at the end of the 1950s, these are um, the complaints of this second strand of, of uh, defense critics. But since they were arguing about totally separate, from totally separate angles, um, and since they were challenging the the man who had, after all, sort of coordinated the Western efforts against Hitler in World War II, they they didn't meet much in the way of uh, mm-hmm. political success throughout Eisenhower's first term. By the end of the 1950s, though, uh, the hidden hand is 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 a, a weakened tool for presidential leadership, and. Um, Domestic political challengers like John Kennedy were able to um, fuse these two otherwise disparate defense critic groups by arguing, well, we need more across the board. We need more uh, in terms of conventional combat capabilities. We need to make things like the Green Berets uh, in case, you know. Brushfire wars emerge, or we need to train people who would be anti-communist uh, insurgency warfare people. But we also need more ICBMs. We need more bombers. We need more across the board. Uh, this this kind of uh, defense policy critique was possible at the end of Eisenhower's administration in a way that would absolutely not have been feasible at any time before it. And in large measure, the possibility of that defense criticism, It um, emerged because of the Sputnik uh, uh, satellites and the way that the Sputnik satellites caused reaction domestically uh, because of Eisenhower's uh, hand-in-hand policy approach.
0: Well, you know, we we all cite – I mean, it's it's a good point, and and you bring to my next question, you know, we all cite – Eisenhower's farewell address with its warnings of a military industrial complex, you know, in our classes and our opinions on American military history at this time. You know, in many ways I think we almost use it too freely to apply it to the entire military apparatus on the eve of flexible response. You know, I think it was intended it more of a warning against putting too much investment into missiles and other strategic platforms. Was... The farewell address also tended as a warning against unrestrained spending on dinosaur.
1: The defense, uh, the spending curve on dinosaur was starting to kind of grow at the very close of the Eisenhower era. And he wasn't um, really a big fan of it either, was he? Yeah, as soon as Eisenhower was was, uh, briefed on the dinosaur program, he was. Um, on record, thinking that this was not a great idea, and um, the the spending the spending curve on dinosaurs very very small money for most of the Eisenhower presidency. We're talking um, single uh, single digit millions in terms of a uh, research effort. The curve starts to starts to go up at the end of, the, of his administration, and it's poised to look toward. Something between seventy and one hundred and thirty million, and they think maybe split the difference to make it a hundred for nineteen sixty-one. So Eisenhower is about to leave the presidency; he sees this this program, which had been um, implicitly a policy um, dilemma for his for his uh, Corona reconnaissance efforts, but had heretofore been only extraordinarily small scale nobody was bending any metal it was just it was you know people doing math problems and sketches on on um, on uh, 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 engineering boards but as this as his presidency starts coming to a close it becomes apparent that the dinosaur program is on a track toward becoming uh, a test vehicle and that's going to mean uh, both more more expenditures and also uh the prospect of an actual vehicle that will manifest this policy conundrum much more distinctly and uh in in December nineteen sixty so this is you know a month before his uh, his farewell um, Kennedy actually I'm sorry, uh, Eisenhower actually comes to some pretty distinct disagreements with uh, um his uh chief of staff his outgoing chief of staff of the air force uh thomas white who's uh, lemay's predecessor uh white goes to bat for the for the dinosaur uh to the president at a national security council meeting and is um more or less t- told to pound sand by the president uh, in front of the nsc and in the weeks that follow um Eisenhower and, and his advisors, as they're draft, drafting and re, re-crafting the last finishing touches on the farewell address and on his final budget messages, the things that had been in, in development for some time, um, Eisenhower and his advisors are confronted with the dinosaur topic and have to think, well, do we want to call out a dinosaur by name? Do we want to do something that, that would be read publicly as um, a critique, a, a criticism of the dinosaur program as we're shutting off the lights and leaving, leaving the White House. And what Eisenhower ends up deciding is that he's going to avoid, um, in, his, in his final messages, he's going to avoid any statement that could be seen as an overt criticism of dinosaur, um, largely because it would be ineffectual. If, he's, if he says something bad about the program, but he's leaving the presidency, he he wouldn't be able to kill pro- the project off. It would just get uh, reinaugurated under successor, and so he can't actually stop it. And it would look um, kind of tacky from a policy standpoint to say something bad about it and not cut it off. And cutting it off wouldn't be the final word. And so he ends, ends up deciding he'll he'll make the make his, his final messages um, be what what the public will, will see in in January of nineteen sixty one, be with their what the their remembered speeches that they are today, not overtly going after the dinosaur, but certainly, as you as you point out, uh warning against um overambitious and insufficiently uh mindful expenditures on any and every uh project. Um rather than what he he thinks is a much better approach of being um, deliberate with with spending to make sure that projects are, as much as possible, um, going to fulfill policy objectives, and that this is uh, tied to uh, the need for a, a vigilant and informed public, which is a I think a really good goal and an extraordinarily important goal. It's a tough square to circle uh, in the midst of um, the need for security that is inherent in something like an ongoing cold war with a, with a rival superpower, but it's nonetheless a very important um, aspiration. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, the air force proponents for dinosaur, I mean, clearly they're, they're they had to be enthusiastic, about their prospects under the Kennedy administration, yeah, but they were soon disappointed though weren't they
1: they were and and, and I think I, I like the way you, you describe that because there was a lot of hope in the Air Force that um, that Eisenhower's successor would be someone who would gin up the effort for Dinosaur specifically and for um, a robust uh, deterrent capability in space broadly um. The uh, the Air Force proponents of dinosaur were frustrated by Eisenhower's continuing efforts throughout his presidency to sort of slow roll the program. But they were confident they were confident in a vision of what where space would fit into security uh, into security picker in the future, and they were also confident that um, okay Eisenhower might be naive from their standpoint, but success is going to is going to get it. He's going to understand that. We can't just trust that space won't be militarized and weaponized. We need to go in there, develop things, dominate space. Uh, Air Force officers of the uh, uh, of the late 1950s and 1960s fully expected that whoever Eisenhower's successor would be, it would be someone who understood how important it was to develop a, ter- a deterrent capability in space, and that this would mean uh, approval for an acceleration of the dinosaur program. On top of that, um, John Kennedy had, had, had swum with the current. Uh, Is in his campaign in a lot of ways, and in 1960 he had been um, he was the first to initiate the idea of a of a missile space gap, but he certainly uh, latched onto it as one of his uh, policy critiques of the Eisenhower administration and one of his arguments that the country needed to for um, him and and um, steer away from continuation of, of Eisenhower's policies, and his rhetoric asserting that there was a missile space gap and that he would fix it and that he'd fix it as part of a across the board. Uh, set of increases for defense spending that would, by the way, he asserted, uh, gin up the economy. And this is, um, in a sense, what what Kennedy was, was promoting on the campaign trail was Reaganomics, uh, a generation before him. Uh, big defense spending that would boost the the economy out of a little of a in the late 50s. Um, these were these were promises he made on record, and uh, Air Force points of the dinosaur were reasonable in imagining that what he said he was going to do would lead to um, acceleration. Of dinosaur support for the dinosaur increased funds its place at least in the Sun according to sort of where the Air Force had been thinking it would it would uh, develop in fact uh, in March 1961 this is two months after uh, Kennedy's operation and it's two months before uh, Kennedy's call for a uh, mandler program the, the the making of the Apollo uh, program for the in order to land somebody on the moon and return them by decades and two months before that speech Kennedy, as part of a larger uh, address to Congress on Defense, had uh, called specifically for Mm -hmm. further work on Dinosaur. There was a lot of reason in the Air Force for people to be expecting that Kennedy would support a robust Air Force presence in in space. Um, What they got um, instead was was a surprise because as Kennedy became president um, in 1961, he started confronting a lot of of, – Cold War security issues and uh, sort of budgetary concerns—all these strategic assets were now um, on his desk. He learned several things. One of them was that the uh, Corona reconnaissance data that he'd been briefed on uh, before his inauguration was indeed true, and there was not a missile space gap um, that was in the in the U.S. disfavor. In fact, the U.S. Um, space technology ex- already exceeded that in terms of uh, technological accomplishments, exceeded the, the Soviets in terms of um, missile, uh, nuclear-armed missiles. The U.S. was arguably um, significantly ahead. The uh, The U.S. deployed its first uh, intercontinental ballistic missile, uh, the Atlas, in uh, the second half of 1959, or about, about mid-year, about mid-year of 1959. We were already deploying Atlas ICBMs. The Soviets had tested an R-7 uh, ICBM uh, prototype um, in August of 1957, but they didn't actually start fielding ICBMs until uh, much later. And th- there, there isn't a Soviet missile force pointed at the U.S. when uh, when Kennedy takes takes uh, office. And so the U.S. is already ahead in missiles. It's already Arguably ahead in space, the one place where it's notably behind is just the uh, the throw weight of booster rockets. That's a very easy thing to you know take pictures of and see and think, oh my gosh, the Soviets have got these giant boosters. But pretty much across the board, U.S. technology exceeds that of the Russians, except for booster technology in 1961. Um, Kennedy is is, in, is therefore kind of confronted with a, a situation where he had argued to uh, to his his now constituents, his supporters uh, and the whole country, that he would put right the fact that the U.S. was behind in missile space. And in fact, he discovers we're ahead. Well, how do you, how do you fix that? Now, now that you're in office and you've promised to fix a problem that it now is revealed, but only to, to policymakers because this is very secret data, it's revealed that, that this isn't a problem to be fixed. Well, Kennedy has to somehow assuage his his uh, uh, constituents and supporters who are interested in aerospace development and had expected aerospace development, and the Air Force had expected specifically that the dinosaur would would be would be developed. And so his response in the spring and summer of 1961 is to first promote space activity, including dinosaur, in March, and then in May to say, well we proposing the the lunar uh, the lunar missions, and that's fine until by the by year's end, you start to notice what uh, what this kind of program might cost. Um, since it, it, most of the science is not unknown, but the techno- technological challenges include a lot of unknowns, and the, even the price tag is something that the best estimates. Vary between 20 billion and 40 billion at a time when the U.S. national budget is uh, um, about 100 billion dollars. This is something that might cost almost a half a half of an entire federal budget for a year. It's daunting to know how to how this might fit into a national context, and so what we see with the remainder of his presidency. Um, which coincides almost exactly with the remainder of the lifespan of the dinosaur is uh, Kennedy's efforts to disengage from the cost obligations of the space race, but retain if possible, the national prestige benefits. And this is one of the reasons why we see uh, Kennedy um, promote at, at times, the idea of potential collaboration with the Russians in a lunar mission, and other times not. It's why we see him uh, in, the, in in the, in spite of the arguments of his uh, NASA administrator slash NASA programs across the board, except for Apollo. He's trying to he's trying to um, lose budgetary weight. And when the NASA administrator says, you know, we've got this broad program of all kinds of different space projects and things, Hmm. Um, this is in in November of 1962, so it's uh, about a year before Dinosaur's canceled. It's about a month after uh, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, Kennedy bluntly tells his NASA administrator that all the NASA activities except for Apollo don't really matter to him because quote I'm not that interested in space um, close quote so for for Kennedy space was important as a political tool for for himself and for the country in terms of national prestige beyond that it didn't really hold that much water for him and that was a that was a massive surprise to a lot of people who were um, Interested in aerospace technologies and in space exploration, and it's still, still to this day, um, a surprisingly um, obscure point in in Kennedy's legacy. Uh, Kennedy is still thought of uh, by a lot of by a lot of renowned space historians as being a, a pioneer of space exploration, but I think the, the record. Uh, Suggests something something uh, more nuanced that that, Eisen, uh, that uh, Kennedy's interest in space and his understanding of space was not up to the level of Eisenhower's, and that's something that that even some uh, a few contemporary uh, journalists um, sort of hinted at and observed uh, during uh, during Kennedy's presidency was that there wasn't immense interest in space. Um, Despite despite the uh, the record uh, supporting that that uh, conclusion, Kennedy is often thought of as a space pioneer. <clears throat> but uh, but in a large measure, um, his performance is kind of a disappointment. It was a dis- disappointment for uh, Air Force aerospace advocates, and doesn't match up with the 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 soaring rhetoric of his very famous May nineteen sixty one. Challenged the country to um, accomplish a, a a manned lunar landing and return by by decade's end
0: well dinosaurs as you say is canceled in nineteen sixty three kind of meets a, a goes out with a dud It's, it's not really really um as spectacular a a fight put up for as you might expect but I, I gotta ask i mean did dinosaur really die?
1: Well, that, uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, the, the program came under some significant stress uh, when um, Bob McNamara, the uh, Secretary of Defense at the time, uh, requested a study, a comparison in March 1963. Uh, the Air Force looked at uh, what Dinosaur was expected to achieve and be capable of doing and put that side by side with a, what was called a Blue Gemini the idea that the two-man NASA jet capsule might be uh, continued on as a project but headed under the Air Force once, once NASA didn't need it anymore. And what was discovered between uh, March and October of 1963 the, during the study was that uh, certain, uh, there were certain capabilities that dinosaur might have like uh, maneuverable reentry that even a heavily modified Gemini capsule could not offer. There were other things that Gemini could, in theory, accomplish that uh, the contemporary versions of the dinosaur concept wouldn't be able to. Uh, Gemini, with a sort of a trailer behind it, could carry more stuff than dinosaur. Uh, Neither program uh, would be able to accomplish what the Air Force hoped to achieve with with uh, an operational aerospace vehicle, and there was it was kind of compa- comparing apples to oranges and finding that neither of them was meat, and so neither of them was really what the what the air force wanted uh in terms of operational capabilities and that uh, that uh was a, a, a fairly damaging harpoon in the dinosaur uh by by october of nineteen sixty three it it had facilitated uh McNamara's uh decision by december to cancel the program outright, but um, the administration was not uh, entirely confident that there wouldn't someday be a need for man in space, for an Air Force man in space. And so uh, at the same time that McNamara canceled the Dynamic Soarer as a a space glider uh, project, he inaugurated what was called the Manned Orbital Laboratory, or MOL, and that project went on for another five years and cost three times more than than Dinosaur. Um, it was – I think it, we, we could think of it as kind of being um, a two-man version of Skylab, mm-hmm. but under Air Force purview and for a reconnaissance concept. That, that seems to be, according to what's been, what's been classified, that seems to be about um, – sort of a rough picture of what what the mall was was meant to be. Um not not a glider, not re- maneuverable, no uh big technological capabilities in terms of re-entry through the atmosphere. And so all these engineers who had been working on those aspects of the dinosaur uh were were temporarily you know looking for looking for a new job. And as as you mentioned, um they did find it. There were follow-on projects um, that, that popped up, um, the uh, F2M3 um, sort of tub-shaped uh, contraption, which is now in the Air and Space Museum in the Smithsonian in Washington. It's by the, uh, by the staircase. It's a silvery bowl-shaped thing. Um, that was a project that essentially stemmed from the engineering talent that was available upon dinosaurs uh, cancellation and was pointed at other notions of, well, how, how, how would we do um, atmospheric reentry with some, some kind of lifting capability, but not with uh, conventional wings. Another uh, sort of research strand that we see involves uh, the work that'll ultimately uh, bring the, the space shuttle program, which uh, had a, a pretty good run with you know thirty years of, of uh, piloted missions bringing human beings into low Earth orbit, and, and, and while the while the space shuttle is not a direct development of the of the uh, a direct extension of the dinosaur, it certainly draws on some of the engineering discoveries and a lot of the engineering talent. Uh, a lot of the people who worked on dinosaur would work later on the shuttle, and so in terms of kind of. Indirect results. Uh, the dinosaur program does does have some some interesting and some notable um, technological stepchildren. Sure.
0: Well, you know I can't resist um, as as we near the close of this. You know, the idea of a space force is is in the news a lot lately. And it, it does. After reading your book, it, it, there is, seems to be an antecedent for it in the in the concept of dinosaur, at least. What lessons should we we take from dinosaur as we contemplate a so-called space force?
1: That's a really great question, Bob, and I, I appreciate it. Um, the space force—it's going to be interesting to see uh, to, to watch events. We we live in we live in very interesting times in a lot of ways, and it'll be interesting to see what. What comes from this? Um, there had been in the 1950s interest in creating a uh, some kind of air force space thing. there was a, there was an effort to make a directorate of uh, for, for space um, two months after after Sputnik, and that was immediately closed down by the Secretary of the Air Force. but yeah that, that impetus to plant the flag on the new domain uh, is something we can definitely see amongst uh, Air Force, senior Air Force leaders uh, going back going back uh, to, the, to the mid-1950s and the late 1950s. Um, I think as far as takeaways regarding uh, Dinosaur, I think there are several. Um, from a policy standpoint, I think we can say that um, we see in Dinosaur's development in the course of its program, the presidential styles create opportunities, but also traps for for policymakers, that Eisenhower was unable to uh, contain dinosaurs completely as he meant to, as he wanted to, partly as a result of the shortcomings that emerged from his own presidential leadership style, and that Kennedy, his successor, was also um, in some ways locked into a set of options on um, space policy that were baked into the, baked into his, his approach to leadership, that, he, that his intre- Kennedy's interest in demonstrable activity, um, which I think we can say he pri- prioritized above even the direction of his activities, meant he was going to have something bold in space, and that we kind of get the initial strand of support for Dinosaur, and then that massive infusion of political support for, for Apollo, and for the wobbling afterward, is of his policy, philosophy, his policy philosophy, the prioritized action. I think we can also say more specifically regarding, regarding dinosaur uh, as a project, military services have to be prepared for the possibility that abrupt changes in national policy that impact strategy, impact technologies are developed, are always in the wings. That abrupt shifts in, in policy might always be just around the corner and have enormous strategic impacts that fundamentally shape which technologies are um, conducive to the national interest, and that the services have to be both able to answer these shifts, but that it's it's dangerous to base their investment and their strategy on expectations of specific policy changes, that the Air Force expectation that Eisenhower's successor would be a defender of the dinosaur was understandable perhaps at the time, but that they were sticking all their eggs in, them in in one basket. And that's a very that's a very challenging um, thing to do when the national defense is sort of entrusted to you because um, you don't want to have your eggs in the wrong basket. But um, it's it's a tough it's a tough thing to be ready for all the abrupt changes, but also for the possibility that continuity will 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 occur. Um, I think I think those are some of the some of the biggest most enduring takeaways of. Um, this this chapter in in space security history and in technological development, it's a fascinating fascinating topic, and uh, something that I know I I really enjoyed exploring, and I hope that uh, folks uh, appreciate and enjoy reading about.
0: I hope so too. I hope so too. Well, again, Nick, we're closing up here. Uh, we do have some some last questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, first. What are you reading now that you might recommend to our listeners?
1: Hmm, that's a good question. Um, well, uh, regarding regarding a uh, uh, space topics, I guess uh, the space race is next is an excellent book, of course. But uh, I think um, uh, Walter McDonald's in the Earth* is it remains a fundamentally val uh, take on on uh, the trajectory of, of space policy. It's uh, it's kind of it's an oldie but a goodie, and it's a it's a thick book with a lot of good information, and it remains, I think, a, a really good thing for readers who are interested in space uh, in, in, in space history to uh, to engage with.
0: Again, that's Walter McDougall's The Heavens and the Earth.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think I think that that is a book that uh, I think McDougall still needs to be on the on the bookshelf. I think that, uh, and and something that is that is read and appreciated because it's it's a good one. Uh, I think uh, John Logsdon recently came out with a uh, uh, a, a book on um, the history after Apollo. Yeah, um, yeah,
0: he, he's, uh, a, he's a, a big
1: fan of of Kennedy's, and I think he he credits Kennedy with being a space pioneer uh, more so than I would. But uh, he is a uh, an important scholar of the, of the field and uh, uh, a pretty pretty renowned one. And uh, his book on sort of where NASA picks up the pieces and tries to move forward after Apollo, uh, which is the, the title of the book, I think is also a, a, something that is is uh, an interesting an interesting uh, topic to consider. Well, the second question is,
0: um, where do we go from here? What's your next project?
1: <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Uh, well, I'm thrilled to say that I, uh, I recently published a my my second book, is an edited volume that came out in April, um, and dealt with uh, various um military innovations across uh across history the first uh first chapter involves um mapping the mediterranean for strategic purposes in the 12th century and other other examples proceed through um especially the the uh, uh 19th and 20th centuries and go into the into the present uh including a study on on uh Uses of social media, both in, uh, in Nigeria amongst terrorists and counterterrorism, and also folks trying to trying to use social media and mapping to um, curtail and, f- and foreclose on um, the mass atrocities of tomorrow, trying to make things, things like the Holocaust kind of not happen again. That was a, a project that I really a labor of love that I uh, had been shepherding, uh, to, as a way to showcase the efforts of some really great uh, former colleagues at uh, the U.S. Military Academy, West Point. And um, uh, next summer, I'll be publishing a uh, uh, an encyclopedia project on um, cyber warfare and social media in modern war and also some physical technologies in 21st century conflict. That'll be with uh, ABC Clio uh, Press appearing next summer. The next the um, uh, Monograph project that I'm, that I'm currently uh, researching, and that's uh, going to be coming out uh, a little bit down the road, is um, regarding uh, the training of uh, foreign, foreign air crew in the United States during World War II. Um, it's a, a part of the Lend-Lease program that, while Lend-Lease is very famous, um, and rightfully so, and it's a, a big part of World War II, um, the foreign training programs were things that uh, uh, don't necessarily get all the all the attention that I think I'd, I'd like to see them get in the in the literature. Um, there were a lot of uh, British folks, uh, air crew, who were trained in the U.S. about sixteen thousand. There were some French, uh, about four thousand of them. Um, and there's some attention to, to those to those contingents um, and, and the, the part that they play in World War II. Um, but there were also several other countries that sent uh, personnel to to train in the United States, and the, um, sent uh, cadre off back to the back to the fighting fronts across across the globe during World War, World War II. And so this was a an effort that uh, built the military capacity of allies, but also was a, kind of a diplomatic, an important diplomatic tool for two, and a. Um, 1st while well-forgotten uh, chapter of the uh, of the lend-lease um, part in, in in that conflict. So, my next uh, monograph is dealing with is going to be dealing with the uh, uh, part of that training effort dealing with um, the Dutch and uh, the Indonesians, because it was then the D- Dutch East Indies. There had been an entire flying school located in uh, the Dutch East Indies after the fall of uh, Netherlands uh, to, to the Nazi invasion in 1940. When the, when the uh, Dutch East Indies slash Indonesia was invaded by Japan uh, late 1941, early 1942, um, this entire uh, air school was displaced and had to find a new, a new spot to complete its training so they could go back to the fight and help uh, roll back uh, Japanese imperial conquests in, in the Pacific. And what they ended up doing was training in the, in the uh, deep south of the United States. Uh, out in, in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, set up a and effectively a Dutch flying school for about a year and a half, and then went back out to the fight, supported the uh, the U.S. and the Australian efforts uh, combating Japan in the in the Southwest Pacific, and a lot of those folks um, after the war did various things, including uh, several uh, returned to the U.S. Uh, about. Uh, uh, 10% of them ended up marrying uh, U.S. Uh, uh, women, uh, women in the in the United States during their uh, their training, um, and they made a, a kind of an interesting international relations uh, experience for for these Dutch people and Indonesians and for uh, folks in in uh, um, Central Mississippi, and a very interesting chapter, I think. That uh, I look forward to exploring in, in more detail and being able to uh, uh, present to readers uh, before too long. I'm currently currently in, in discussions with uh, Nebraska Potomac uh, Press and hope to hope to be able to bring that to readers. Good, before good. Too long.
0: Well, Nick, thanks for taking the time to talk with me
1: today. Well, I sure appreciate it, Bob. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, not at all. My pleasure. And for our listeners. On behalf of the New Books Network and the New Books and Military History Channel, this is Bob Wintermute. Thank you for listening.